You're listening to the ConsumerFi Podcast, powered by Norbridge, loan software that accelerates change. Everybody, welcome today to the show, uh, a longtime industry ally and uh, co-member of the National Automotive Finance Association board, Eric Johnson. Eric, I'll let you do your your introduction to kind of tell folks about you know who you are and what you do at Hudson Cook. Although I'd really be surprised if if everybody doesn't already know. But but welcome, Eric, to the show. Well, thank thanks for having me. People are probably tired of hearing hearing me, maybe not seeing my my face as much since we haven't been able to see each other in person as much. But um, yeah, I'm I'm a uh, partner with Hudson Cook. I'm in my actually in my Oklahoma City office right now. Pardon the mess behind you, um, or behind me rather. Um, I practice primarily in the automotive sales and finance space for uh, for our firm. Although being in Oklahoma, anything dealing with consumer credit, I will, will handle that as well. It's just kind of jack of all trades. What do they say? Jack of all trades, master of none, but working on trying to get that master certificate one of these days. (laughs) If you haven't already earned it, I don't know, at least from exposure, you know, Eric is, is, has been a fantastic ally to the industry from an educational standpoint, certainly with the conference tracks and, and, and moderating things and, and just being outspoken and articles. But also I had the fantastic, uh, 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 luxury of having you as as my instructor for the uh, uh, compliance management uh, certificate that I earned through the NAF as well with you and, and Patty Covington. And I hope Patty is doing well as well. Yep. Doing well. Yep. Glad, glad that you're able to get the certificate. And uh, we were just talking about plans for next year and, and we'll see if we're able to do it virtually, you know, via Zoom or if we are able to do it in person. So we'll, we'll just have to see how things go. Yeah. So, so if anybody, I mean, that was one of the things and what we're going to talk about today is, is Eric uh, published a recent article uh, kind of looking into the tea leaves as to what uh, the Biden Harris administration could mean from some very important and relevant posts that impact all of us in consumer lending and in particular auto finance. And I just, Eric, you laid it out so nicely, and just—he's just a very clear thinker and communicator. Um, the name of the article is "What Does a Biden-Harris Administration Mean for Auto Sales and Finance?" and it was produced in Nonprime Times. Uh, it's available online, and it was put out on December seventh. So I, I say, Eric, what do you say we just dive right in? Yeah, yeah, you bet. So you know, do you want me to give you kind of a summary? You have questions? Well, yeah. I mean, like specific? what? I mean, obviously, you know, something something uh, motivated you to write the article and, you know, were there pe- a lot of people asking questions and you just said, man, I'm tired of having the same conversation over and over again. Might as well just write an article and refer them to that. Like what was kind of the motivation behind this? Yeah. Great question. I it, probably a little of both, uh, you know, a large part of, I think of what we do and, and the type of, of law that we, we practice, I mean, is thinking about not only where we are today, but where we may be in the future. And then, of course, getting questions from clients about, um, you know, what should we be thinking of? What should we be doing to better protect ourselves in the coming, uh, you know, six months, coming year, you know, three, four years? Yeah. Um, and that was really the motivation for putting this art- article together. And it's kind of 
kind of uh, evolved and shaped even from when I released that um, that initial draft to the NAF that was published. Um, I mean, we have new things to, to look at and yeah. to think about as well. Yeah. So there's, it seems like it, it's a very interesting time. Uh, I try to keep tabs on what goes on on the Democrat side uh, through some friends that I have that are are very aligned with that group and 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 from what I'm hearing, it sounds like um, you know I, I don't want to paint my own bias on it, but it sounds like Biden's come in. He has a realistic understanding of how things function when you have to place certain people, and there's a contingent that is you know. Uh, the sensationalized version, like the social media versions of of, of politicians, that represent the, the really more extreme version of, of that that party, and they're just not going to be satisfied unless they, you know, he he puts forth the most, um, you know, the people that are most aligned with their values, and yet it sounds to me as though at least from starting to look at because what what do we have to look at so far? We have to, we can look at his cabinet placements, and so on the cabinet placements, you know. Uh, you know, people were talking about Liz Warren for Treasury. Um, you've, you know, other other posts could be maybe commerce or or any kind of monetary type thing. From what I'm hearing, he's 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 shooting for diversity, but I think he's trying to place people that have well credentialed. You know, and, and they are well credentialed, I should say, and he has some some realistic view toward saying I have to have some Republican support for these people as well. Is that what you? Is that is that how you're kind of reading it as well? Yeah, I, I am. I mean, I think it's a really. I, I agree with you. Very interesting time. Uh, very interesting transition. Um, uh, trans, transition teams as well as the names of the of the candidate posts. I right. mean, for example, you know, putting Leandra Leandra English in charge of the trans, the CFPB transition team is very interesting. Um, tell us, me. tell us a little bit about her. I, I'm not familiar with with Leandra English. Yeah, what. She was, um, you may remember whenever Cordray resigned back in, what was it, November 2017. Okay. Um, he resigned and then on his way out the door, appointed his, um, appointed her as the acting director. Uh, um, and you remember? Yes. Um, didn't they kind of like, know, didn't the, they kind of the like lock her out of her office and stuff? I mean, it was, it was almost comical, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you've got, you know, her on one hand and you've got Mulvaney showing up with his box of donuts, you know, the right. next day. And it's like, who, who is the director? And, and, you know, and we had the, the lawsuits that, or the lawsuit that went on for a few months. And then eventually she uh, withdrew her suit um, and has, I think been in, been in capacity in, in New York for, for ever since then, but, but she's now leading the transition team. Um, so I, I th- it's a, it's real interesting. You're right. I mean, with Biden, kind of, I kind of see Biden as kind of like the old guard. Mm-hmm. Of, you're right. He's been there forever. knows knows how things work. Um, knows how to get things done, both Republican and Democrat side. But then you've got um, the Harris team and some of the more, I think the more liberal components of that wanting, we want change and we want it now. We want it very, very quickly. Um, to me, that. The, the election that's coming up in January in Georgia that would decide control of the Senate is is very crucial mm. because it really not only does it decide control of the Senate, but it could ultimately decide who they might propose as a new director who can get uh, proposed and then get confirmed by the Senate. 
if if the Republicans maintain control of the Senate, you're going to have somebody that's that arguably could would have to uh, withstand that confirmation process. Mm-hmm. If they get control, if the Dems get control of the Senate, then I, I don't know. Would you see Richard Cordray again? Would you see Elizabeth Warren or maybe uh, one of her disciples like like Rep. Katie Porter in there? You know, you could see some very liberal directors be proposed. That's right. And, you know, one of the things that's that's kind of strikes me is when they post people to the CFPB specifically, I think there's a the biggest difference in my mind is assigning which credentials really matter for somebody to be in important posts. You have people that run under the moniker of a community organizer um, that can be running the thing uh, versus me saying, I I think I'd prefer to have somebody who has some familiarity with how financial markets work and how economics work, uh, at least within the the, the confines of the US. Um, What do you think, what, what, have you thought about that, about what type of credential a Joe Biden would be looking for, or is it, is this kind of something you think he may be a little bit more hands off with and, and say, Hey, Kamala, you take it and run with it. That's a good question. I, I don't have any insight as to, you know, who's calling the shots for the director. Um, I mean, but, but look at um, our current director, director, Kathy Kraniger, who really, you know, for all intents and purposes did not have experience in the financial services arena. Yeah. I mean, he was more, you know, in the budgetary process, long-term, um, you know, yep. person in D.C., but she seems to have done pretty well um, leading the charge. And maybe not as to the consumer advocate's point of view, but, boy, they've been very active the last, you know, four or five months or so in bringing these enforcement actions and, um, uh, you know, educating consumers, but she's been pretty um, pretty good in that role. Whether that's somebody that, um, like, whether Biden would bring in um, or Harris would bring in somebody like that, I, I just don't know. Um, I think it really depends on what happens in the Senate. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I often wonder about what type of horse trading would be in the interest of Biden to say, okay, fine, you can have this one as long as I get somebody that I really like over at transportation or or, or what have you. Um, and you heard. You heard his joke about if they if they disagree, um, if like and Biden said, if uh, much like if he and Obama would disagree, if he and Biden, if he and Harris were to disagree, then he would I think he said something like, you know, come down with an illness and have to resign, kind of saying it in joking terms. But um, I'm curious to see what happens if they do disagree on who might lead the director. Does he get to pick? Does she get to pick? I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> um, you get into in the article, you get into thinking about what the agenda could be, and you call out, you know, some of the social issues with racial equity and justice as it pertains to financial programs and regulation that surround that. That got me immediately thinking about this HUD measure of disparate impact. That you know was was built for obviously for 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 the mortgages, but then you know was translated over into auto. And you know you and I've spoken at great length about how there are pitfalls to this, right? Um, the 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 methodology. Um, do you, have, 
do you think that that's going to come back into play? I mean, I kind of wonder if it ever really went away, but do you think it's going to have more relevance, uh, obviously, to support that? I, I, I do. I think, um, I think they will certainly try. You know, and I had to go back into the history of it a little bit. You remember the the CFPB's auto finance bulletin mm-hmm. uh, that they had issued that um, that Congress actually uh, did, had disapproved under the Congressional Review Act um, and was eventually struck down. Um, and I think that strike under the CRA authority means that the Bureau shouldn't be able to re- revisit that via a a rule or really even a bulletin unless they get approval from Congress to do so. So again, I think that plays into um, if you have a house that's Democrat controlled and a Senate that's Democrat controlled, then I think we could see some legislation uh, around disparate impact related to auto finance. Um, But if we have a split house and Senate, um, I think it'd be real challenge Mm -hmm. to, to see another bulletin like that, or I'm curious to see what um, what they what the bureau could do in the disparate disparate impact arena, you know, outside of regulation, outside of of legislation. Yeah, I think it'd be a real challenge. You mentioned linkages between this topic and the state's AG. Um, what type of uh, interaction would you be expecting? Are you expecting to see there um, anything different than what we've been doing before in the past? I, yeah, I, I think I would see. I would expect to see probably increased um, cooperation between the CPB and the state AGs. Um, you know, we've we've seen some cases where the CPB would would work with a state. I think the latest is um, they worked with the state of Arkansas AG on bringing enforcement action against uh, an entity. I think um, I would expect to see more uh, cooperation between the Bureau and the, and the state AGs. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, to me, it's almost like, um, it's almost like Cordray 2.0. Mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, if you have, like I said in the article, if you have nostalgia for the past and the way it was before, where, I mean, it's the old regulation by enforcement, it's where they, they measure th- their success in dollars that are recovered either for the, for the consumer or just straight up civil monetary penalties. I think that's, that's what we're looking at um, in the next four years. Mm. I, I struggle to think who the winners are in a, in a setup like that. Um, mm. I mean, other than political points, because Eric, you know, there, there were some massive penalties that were levied. And then I know some people were able to battle it back to like a more reasonable figure, mm-hmm. but you know, that's very costly. You're going to have to be a very large organization with deep pockets to be able to afford to defend yourself. Yeah. And then I, I, the money may be getting sent back in retribution to the consumers, but I never really saw there was a really big push and I never really heard too much about that money flowing back out to these harmed consumers. And so to me, it was kind of like, oh, you're collecting all this money. That's great. And then now you've upgraded your offices. <laughs> sorry. Right. Right. sorry, I shouldn't, I shouldn't add that level of commentary, but I think by this point, everybody knows where I stand on the topic. Yeah. <laughs> A little bit of level of cynicism, but well, well I mean, I, I can see, I can see what you mean. I, 
you know, I think it's just a difference in, in viewpoint. I mean, if you look at it from the lens of how Cordray looked at it, which, you know, former AG, you know, we're going to enforce. We're going to enforce the law. We're going to make it very painful for companies that um, that violate the law. And, and I think in his eyes, they, they saw a lot more people violating the law than I think Kraniger does. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a different in style and different approach. Yeah. Um, and, you know, again, that's she, when she took the helm, she didn't, I think she even said, we don't measure our success really, or may not measure it by in terms of dollars going back to the consumer or dollars in penalty amounts. Right. Uh, they're going to look at it more of an educational lens yes. than, than he did. Well, let's, it, it, you know, if you have no dollars collected, it doesn't mean you're not doing your job. You may have prevented right. so much of these bad actors from even playing and made it hard for them that, you know. So you mentioned, you mentioned uh, Cordray and, um, you know, he, he's best known for his performance on, on, uh, on Jeopardy. But, uh, you know, he, he did send this letter out talking about, you know, specifically on the nose, hey, you know, it, during COVID, we need to put a moratorium on, on, on repossessions and let that stay through the recovery period, which is not very well defined. Um, right. There's obviously disruption to uh, everything, right? But the thing that I, I, I often wonder that the legislators may, may, may really have an eye on is it disrupts the supply chain. So if you're not repossessing any of these cars, you're, you're, you're cutting off the inventory flow through to the auctions and then that inventory coming through to you know, first-time borrowers, people with thin yeah. files, you know, people with less than stellar credit. So now, now, now they're going to have issues where they, there could be affordability. So, you know, there are real consequences to doing things like this. And we've seen it at the California state level, at the Illinois state level. Um, The companies that I've spoken to have been able to, in all fairness, they have been able to, you know, navigate through it. But at the same time, you're seeing this attrition of of companies wanting to do as much business in California, uh, leaving the state entirely. And so I wonder about consumer access at the state level for, for people like that as well. But anyway, so, so he laid out a pretty clear uh, mandate of what he, he would like to do. Um, do you think that that is supported by the, the party, by the folks on the Democrat side that would be taking over control of the CFPB? Or is this just the old uh, kind of uh, disenfranchised uh, former guy, you know, speaking out, you know? Yeah, no, I... I think some of them do. Honestly, I think this is kind of their mindset on some of this. I mean, you know, he did lay out, and this was early on, uh, early on in the pandemic. I think I, I can't remember the exact month, but you know, like April, May, June, somewhere in that time frame, where he laid out all of these different actions that he thought the bureau should, should take. Um, so I, I, I do see some of the consumer advocates certainly taking this position of, look, you know. Do what you can to, you know, stop the late fees, allow for these long forbearances or modifications of the of the of the, the payments under the contracts, and then also, you know, stopping uh, foreclosures um, or evictions as well as repossessions, vehicle repossessions. So, yeah, um, I can see them trying this in the early days, uh, particularly if Kraniger is is fired and they put a new director in or have one step up. I can see this as being a part of the play. Yeah. You know, in, in the past couple of years, 
our, our group with the NAF, we, we have opened a very nice dialogue that we have going with uh, the CFPB with uh, Johnny Mack and, and Damian English, a couple other folks. Jack and I had the luxury of being able to actually meet them in person. Um, they, they actually called us and they asked us to kind of talk about what we thought the impacts of COVID were going to be very early on. I love that. And, and I hope that that continues through um, whatever administration takes over. Um, so, you know, when I hear some of these more extreme uh, examples of, you know, moratoriums, et cetera, you know, I think, you know, if I look back at what happened with COVID, I think, I think it could happen. It could work, but it would require a significant amount of, of, of kind of corporate welfare to help out the companies to make sure that they can keep staff on the payrolls and keep things going. And so it's like, I really think, okay, if you're of, if you're a large organization, you're a bank, then you have other very large institutions that are able to securitize. Then you have other, uh, say larger institutions with, with over a hundred million dollars in, in debt lines available to them. As you work your way down, it becomes more and more difficult. If, if I have a $100 million line with a major bank and I on, I'm only allowed to extend a certain part of my portfolio, I have all these covenants, all these other performance issues, yep. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to come up with more equity in order to stay alive. And as you get smaller and smaller, it becomes more and more difficult to do that. Yep. So, Great. you know, that's it little bit of commentary there, but, but my wish is that there's, there's gotta be some kind of a balanced view that says, look, you know, these are companies that are employing people and keeping people safe. We've, if you look across the the industry, I mean, all industries, they've done a, a, a fantastic job of managing the work from home equation. And that is really in my mind, Eric really helped to control a lot of the spread because there are mm -hmm. a couple of people that I know personally that have had COVID occur. And unfortunately it's been their offices, in California, auto finance yeah. companies. And it's painful. It's painful to have to go through that. Um, anything else on CFPB? Because you know what, you went into the FTC and I want to spend a little time on FTC and then DOJ as well. But uh, on the, on the CFPB horizon, any other final thoughts on that? Just, you know, in terms of, you know, what folks can do, I think, is, um, you know, shore up those those compliance management systems, get your policies in order. Um, and if if things change at the leadership at the bureau, you better be ready. Yeah, um, because I, I can. And it may not be a very quick change at the bureau because that's a big ship to, to, to change direction. Right. But they will change and folks better be ready. Yeah. Unfortunately, but I. It, it harkens back to four years ago with Cordray, unfortunately. It was painful. I, I feel like I still have the war wounds. Um, yeah. Well, let's get off of that. Let's talk a little bit about FTC. So um, not as not not something that's maybe as spoken about as much as CFPB, but the FTC um, has an interesting structure with a commissioner. And then they mm -hmm. have a, 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 I'm sorry, a group of commissioners, but then they have a chairperson as well. Tell us a little bit about that and how the, what the rules are that govern that. Yeah, I mean, the way the and you're right, the, the FTC is made up differently. Unlike the bureau that has a single director that basically just has almost un, unfettered power in that one director uh, position, 
the FTC has five commissioners. They're nominated by the president. They're confirmed by the Senate. Um, they have a seven-year term. Um, but what's interesting about the commissioners, no more than three can be of the same political party. So you, you do have a balance of Dem, Republican commissioners. Now, the president gets to choose one commissioner of that group to, to act as chairman um, of the commission. Right now, we have a Republican chairman. Um, so if Biden does take office, uh, then he can certainly uh, appoint a new chairman of the commission, probably a, a Democrat. And then it'll be, um, you know, uh, that balance will have shifted then. So um, we do have some commissioners that, um, that one, one commissioner's term actually has expired, but he can actually hold over until we get a new commissioner. And then the next um, term, I think, expires next uh, September 2022. So they were all pretty well appointed about the same time um, and have been um, very active as, as well the last, last six months to a year or so. So, you know, for the near term, folks, um, Eric, you did a great job summarizing this. We're really looking, you know, within the next six months, year, whatever, new commissioner, uh, can be appointed, and then there's there's a replacement of a Democrat commissioner that they'll probably replace with another Democrat commissioner, um, and then you get into a little bit about FTC's actions in dealerships. So, because I'm I'm not a retail guy, okay, uh, I, I rely on uh, information and other people to help me have that pulse. Has the FTC how how historically how how active have they been in? Um, you know, regulating or, or, or working with the dealerships? I mean, in, in terms of the franchise dealerships, I, I guess historically they have not been all that active. Um, now I think that's going to change. Um, if you look at, well, for example, Dodd-Frank gave the Bureau or, or rather the FTC new authority to write rules that would govern franchise dealerships. They haven't done so mm-hmm. yet. Um, if you look at the Bronx Honda case mm-hmm. um, settlement, um, there were two commissioners that had a, um, a, a statement that was issued as a result of that case where they were calling for the Bureau to actually use, or the FTC rather, to actually use their authority to start writing rules primarily about um, you know, loan, loan participation or auto participation, dealer participation. Um, and that, that was one of their their focus. Um, so I, I do think that we'll see the Bureau or the FTC, rather, I keep calling on the Bureau for some reason, they're stuck in my brain. Um, I, I do think that we will see increased focus by the FTC on, you know, primarily dealer type stuff like safeguarding, you know, red flags, uh, privacy policies, all the things that are just squarely right away in the FTC's purview. Um, that will then, you know, possibly impact finance companies as well, but it's going to really focus more on the, on dealer centric type issues. Yeah. Yeah. And I see those kicking up more and more. You have so many more regulations that you have to deal with uh, from consumer uh, data and uh, with omni-channel where there's, you know, these just seamless handoffs from my start off the buying process on some app that then flips me over to a dealership. And now I'm in their loan origination you know, uh, ether and, and all my data is like traveling along, you know, these are the yeah. places that, you know, I, I personally have concerns about these things. You know, I don't, I don't, I, I try not to write down things like, you know, personal identifiers, you know, 
or have them all in the same place. And sometimes you just don't have a choice when you're trying to get credit. That's true. Yeah. Well, in the FTC, I mean, we saw just last week, they filed a suit against uh, Facebook for, in essence, antitrust issues. And then before we jumped on our call today, I saw the FTC had sent a request to a lot of social media companies like Facebook and mm -hmm. uh, TikTok and you know, about the how they collect consumers' information, how they use their data, their information. Um, so they, they've certainly taken a lot more active stance about consumer data and that protect, you know, the use of that data, that protection of the data. Um, so I, I can see that translating over into, you know, a dealer going to, to a consumer or, or a consumer going to a dealer rather and the use of their data collection, how it's used, how it's stored, all of that. So to close it up, we have a department of justice and, um, you were calling out the the fair lending and the racial equity as being kind of the the, the big issues or, or or may drive the mandate for them. Um, yeah. In your article, you kind of called it out. Some of the similar things with the FTC. I mean, where do we kind of where do we delineate uh, you know concerns as as lenders? Uh, do I focus on the FTC mandates versus DOJ? Mm, I mean, it depends on who your regulator is. Uh, you know, if your primary regulator, say if you're a franchise dealer, then you would be looking to the FTC and what they're doing, but also the DOJ. Mm -hmm. um, if you're an auto finance company, you're going to look to primarily to see what the CFPB is is doing, but also the DOJ. I right. mean, the DOJ, um, you know, they can be referred cases from the CFPB um, and primarily like I'm, I'm talking here, you know, fair lending, um, you know, those types of cases, those can also be referred over to the DOJ. So it, it really just depends. I think it's important to keep an eye on all three uh, to see what each are up to. Yeah. But it depends on on who your your regulator is and 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 what issues those regulators are going after or, or attacking at, at any any given time. Yeah. So yeah. That, that's why I raised all three because you just sometimes you just don't know where the shots may be coming from. You, you, you have to have your head on a swivel and be aware of what they're looking at, what they're doing and where the attacks may come from. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, the regulation, I mean, it's just, it seems to be coming so far and uh, so fast as well. You know, I saw something today on JD Supra about uh, California uh, now is going to license um, collectors or license collection agencies, which di different topic. We're not talking about collecting on your own debt probably, but uh but there's just so many things that change. And look, I remember being a, working in finance, uh, trying to go after, I think it was North Carolina and Colorado. Like I, even though I was collecting my own debt, I had to basically designate, I had to like qualify my senior vice president of collections to, to get them qualified to be able to run the department. I thought this guy's got 30 years experience doing this. Um, you know, I don't really know why I need to send in a resume, <laughs> but if that makes you mm -hmm. feel better, then then great. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, and that and that's one of the things that you know we haven't talked about um, Maxine Waters, but um, on the heels of of Cordray issuing his letter, she also issued a um, I guess it was a press release where I read it. She was laying out some things that she thought the the new administration should do day oh, one. Oh yeah, a bunch of things yeah. she wants to unwind. She wants to unwind yeah, a bunch right. of things. That's right. And, you know, fire director, uh, uh, Kraniger, 
Uh, she wants to uh, rescind this debt collection rule that the Bureau has, has just issued and put a you know, more fulsome rule in place that helps protect consumers against, you know, quote unquote, abusive collection practices. And, and I suspect part of that would be, well, let's focus on, you know, first party collectors, not just on third party debt collectors, mm. but parties that are collecting on their own debts. I, I mean, you know, we'll see what happens again in the Senate. Uh, but I can see that being a push again, if we get a change in the director, kind of like what we saw with the payday lending rule, where they kind of they kind of pull that rule back a bit. I can see that happening with the debt collection rule as well. I think. Um, I think. I think. Something to. I, I think we're in for some interesting times, Eric. I I really don't hope that we go back to regulation by enforcement because it was. It, I mean that that time to an auto lender felt like the tenor and the intensity and the confusion and the frustration that I think a lot of us feel today in our political climate broadly, we really felt like we were just get kept, kept getting hammered. And it was like, we kept getting hammered and we're like, do you really understand how this, how this stuff works? Right? Like you're making us out to be this demon and we have to police all these other entities. Um, I much prefer the relationship that we have meaningful relationship with the regulators because you know, and, and again, I've got a biased point of view. I'm sure you do too. But you know, you spend all day talking to to lenders that are calling you because they're concerned about something, right? They they're being proactive, or maybe they weren't as proactive as they should have been. That probably a control that they should have had that wasn't really in place. But if you if you really talk to these folks, it's like, hey, well, I paid off this guy's loan, and I let this guy go, and I helped him with a dealership issue with this other thing, and. You know, I, I don't want to lose sight of that. I want to have a good, nice, big, full picture view, and I want to have a relationship with the regulators. And I hope that that continues because that was something that, at least from my estimation, was just not possible under the Cordray administration. That type of relationship was just not in the cards. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it is no way to to help plan a business, help advise a business, where it's just it's the old gotcha. Uh, type of approach, you know, it just, it just fundamentally feels unfair. And it's just, I mean, and I'm talking about the regulation by enforcement, yeah. where it's, a, you know, it's Tuesday, it's a new rule. Well, Wednesday, here's yet another rule. It's just, and you can't plan your business like that. Very difficult. And um, you can't advise, advise your business or your clients like that. And it's just, I, I'm with you. I hope we don't go back to that. And I think if if we do, I think folks need to really challenge that. Like, like folks started to towards the end of of Cordray's uh, tenure, um, but boy, I'm with you. It was a it was a tough time for for us as advisors, and certainly for our clients as well. And I hope we don't go back to that either. Yeah, well, the, Eric, this has been great, um, folks. We, we Eric, Eric Johnson with Hudson Cook with us. He is one of the preeminent voices within consumer lending. Eric, um, you mentioned in the article, you know, and, and I'd love to, for you to kind of punctuate this about the necessity for uh, having a good compliance management system. Um, but, you know, please, you know, say a word or two about that in closing, but how do people get it? What's the best way for folks to get a hold of you if they need guidance or um, want to kick something around um, phone, email, you know, let's go ahead yeah, and just, yeah. 
Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, I you can reach me by email. It's just ejohnson at hudco.com um, or by phone 405-602-3812. Like most of us, I'm pretty much always connected. Yeah. I, I don't think, I think during COVID times, I don't know that there's an off button. So I'm pretty much always have, you know, handy cell phone around or, or, you know, email constantly, but, but yeah, I, I, you're right to echo your concerns. I mean, if you don't have a CMS and boy, I, I, you know, I still run into folks that sometimes they don't have a CMS, but boy, get a CMS in place, make sure it's robust, make sure it tracks your, your actual policies and procedures. Um, and, you know, make sure you shore up your consumer facing documents. There are some things that you can take now that I think that will be really helpful and getting your CMS in place and making sure it tracks your policies and procedures are really a, a must for the, it's like getting prepared for an upcoming storm. You know, we've had some snow here, getting, getting things battened down, preparing for that storm. It, you know, you can weather the storm, but you've got to get prepared and, and plan for it. Yes. It, well said, Eric. And having a good CMS is going to be good whether whether we think that this administration is going to change or not, it's just a great way to manage your business. And and I, I've dealt with folks at that that run very large finance companies, and they believe that as well. That having good CMS actually gives them more of an advantage and keeps them on the front foot. That's right. Yeah, it, it, great point. It's also a competitive advantage too, and it keeps uh, it keeps you out of trouble and um, keeps the the ship you know sailing smoothly through uncharted or sometimes rough waters. So it can really help. And if you're running an auto finance company and you want to be able to sleep at night, this is one of the things that will help. It, it truly does. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, everybody, Eric Johnson, thank you so much. Eric Johnson of Hudson Cook. Uh, we're talking a little bit about compliance, but also uh, reading the tea leaves, what to expect in a, in a Biden-Harris administration. Eric, thank you so much. All right. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, Joel. The Consumer Five Podcast has been brought to you by Nortridge, loan software that accelerates change. We'd also like to thank the National Automotive Finance Association, the only trade association exclusively serving the non-prime auto financing industry.